Do you turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11? We are nearing the end of the book we've been going through, looking at everything under the sun and the value it leaves us. And actually, this is the final words that Kohelet himself will give us in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. We are ending the very words of our preacher this morning, and then Pastor Will will finish the book up next week. So please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7. And before we begin, let's pray. Oh Lord, how we all love your law. It is the meditation of all of our hearts. Father, I pray that you would illumine our minds through your Holy Spirit this morning and that we might behold wondrous things through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, this is Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. This is the word of God. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away from your body pain. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun, the light, and the moon, and the stars are darkened, and the cloud returns after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, where the wheel is broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was 
The Spirit of God returns who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. What's your idea today of a life well lived? Maybe you think of the famous philosopher Socrates who once said, an unexamined life is not worth living. It is something that we are to spend in self-reflection. We are to spend considering the world around us, considering the people around us, considering our own life and what it is worth. Perhaps you think of another philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, a life well lived is one where we can look from beginning to end and have an absolute love of our fate, every occurrence we've ever had. We are able to say yes to our life and live an eternal recurrence of it. That would be a life well lived We would long for nothing more fervently than this, this ultimate reoccurrence, confirmation, and seal. Or maybe you think of the American journalist Hunter S. Thompson, who he says a life well lived is something that a life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty well-preserved body but rather to skid in broadside with a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. Maybe you find your life comes from your family, comes from the achievements you've received, it comes from your wealth, it comes from the purpose that you've created in your own. Well, you know, in our passage this morning, God himself is presenting us this question. He is using our preacher this morning to ask all of us through the book of Ecclesiastes, what does it mean for us to live a good life? And Kohelet, he's going to ask this question, and he's going to present it for us this morning in two ways. That a life well lived, according to scripture, according to our Christian walk, shows up. And we can answer that question in two different ways. First, a life well lived is through this, where we are able to rejoice in our life. Beginning in verse 7, at the very beginning. This is actually Kohelet's conclusion of everything he has spoken of from beginning to end, and we might be very tempted to think that there is a very pessimistic message the preacher is trying to leave us with. But what is the conclusion he leaves us? In verse 7, light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. The sum of his teaching is not to wallow in the hevel, in the vanity we've spoken of, but is rather to enjoy 
life under the sun. The preacher is not trying to drive us to despair. He's actually commending for us to enjoy the life that God has given us. In fact, in verse 8, what does he say? If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Everything he has spoken about, the abuse we see under the sun, the travesty of injustice, people dying early, people having no purpose, all this paradox and these enigmas, the preacher has that in the back of his mind, and yet with all of that, He commands us to rejoice in every single day of our life. But not only that, he is not being romantic. He's not simply commanding us to rejoice, but he gives the flip side, the second aspect we are to keep in mind. Because keep reading, what does he say? Let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. The abuse the injustice, death, enigma. We will be presented with all of this in our life. And the preacher does not want us to be ignorant of that fact, but in light of everything he has spoken of. He wants us to both rejoice, but also to remember what will happen to all of us. In fact, those two words, to rejoice and to remember, are almost going to be the very framework he constantly brings up again and again for us. Just speaking about rejoicing, move to verse 9. What does he say? You remember earlier, before we read this, he has said many times, there is nothing better for us to eat, to drink, to be merry. And as we move along, he begins to commend it. It is commended for us to eat and to drink and be merry. But now what is he saying? Verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Remove vexation. Actually, the word there is better. Remove vexation from your heart. The next one, put away pain. Rather, put away evil from your body. He begins to implore us to be doing these things. He is moving from an indicative now to an imperative. And as he began in verse 9, you may be tempted, speaking to only young people here, the teenagers, the college students, but remember that this is actually wisdom literature for all of us. Think about how Proverbs begins in chapters 1 through 9. It is Solomon speaking to his son. But actually the son is meant to be emblematic for all of us that Solomon begins to speak to all of us. And even here, the preacher, Solomon himself, is wanting all of us, as Bartholomew, the interpreter, tells us, we are supposed to get the very foundation of our lives as early as we possibly can. For all of us this morning, we are to live in conformity to all of those passages he spoke of, to eat, to drink, to be merry, to take joy in our life. Because we are very tempted, as we have read Ecclesiastes, to focus on the days of darkness, to focus on injustice that happens in our life. 
to focus on sickness that is presented to us, to focus on the crook in the lot, as Thomas Boston describes in one of his books, the dark providence that happens to us, but rather the application for all of us this morning that the preacher is actually driving us to is to rejoice in our life, to be happy with the pleasure that God has given us. The Babylonian Talmud actually tells us that all of us must give an account before God of all good things we saw in life and did not enjoy. So if that is true for us this morning, if we are not just commanded to flee from the evil, to put away evil from our bodies, but to actually experience the good in life, to not focus on these days of darkness, how are we expected to do that? How is the preacher wanting us to rejoice? Well, first, he wants us to make our heart glad. And foundationally, the only way we can rejoice, we can make our own heart glad, is by turning to God himself, who is our highest good. In the Psalms, Psalm 73, there is a high priest named Asaph. In Psalm 73, he is speaking about all this inconsistency. He is very close to the preacher in Ecclesiastes that he sees. But by the end of his psalm, in Psalm 73, he turns to God himself. And these are the words he uses, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. No matter what injustice he sees, no matter what wicked portion is given to evil, it is actually when he begins to look to God for his comfort that his heart is actually comforted. He actually finds joy in his life. And when we are turning to God, first and foremost, as the chief giver of every good and perfect gift in our life, we can begin to understand what the preacher is trying to tell us. Even our confessional standard, if you know the shorter catechism of Westminster, it it tells us that the chief end of all of us here is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Not only this, but actually John Piper, Baptist preacher, he interprets that an aspect of how we are to glorify God is by enjoying him forever. When we are focused on our communion with God, our walk with him, we are in his word when we are praying to God, when we are turning to him when we are in suffering. That is ultimately where we will find the chief source of joy. But not only can we turn to God to find joy, but it's when God is our highest good that that actually flows out for every other aspect of our life. That on an individual level, you can have joy because God is your chief joy, no matter what sickness you face, no matter what financial situation you find yourself in, no matter what hardship 
you face, no matter what your families, your friends may have abandoned you. But even, not just on an individual level, when God is our chief good, when we make him our highest good, that flows out not just for ourselves, but then even for our family. That we see our family is not just people that we live with, but we actually have reasons for why we can love them dearly, why we can find joy in spending time with them, why we can spend find joy in the time that we are with them. And it's not just with our family, because you might say, Jonathan, I, I don't really have family to turn to. The great thing about Christianity, the Puritans use this language of the communion of saints, that not only are we united to God, we are united to Christ, but when you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, it actually tells us that we are united to each other in love that we become brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can cast our anxieties, our burdens on each other. We can turn to each other in need. We can be praying for each other. And no matter where we find ourselves, we are never alone. Because whether it is on the community level, whether it is with family, even if we have to go to the very foundation of God is our highest good, and it is him that we can make our heart glad, that we can begin to understand what the preacher is trying to speak to us this morning. And not only are we to make our heart glad, but as we saw, we are to know that God will bring everything into judgment. Because Kohelet is not denying the afterlife. So often we, there are many people that try to say that, but actually he continually brings us back that it is the Lord that will judge every good thing we saw in life. But every good thing we did not experience, we purposely ignored when we focused on the suffering that we're facing. When we focused on evil rather than the good gifts God has given us. We are not to spend our moments looking at the days of darkness, we are to consider them and we are to know that they are to come and we can experience true sorrow. But as Christians today, you are actually to be joyful and to find joy in God, to know that God is the one that is working all things for his good. When we turn to him, we don't need to be focusing on the suffering we have. We can be in the midst of it, but it's not to be the focal aspect of our lives. Not only do we see the preacher commanding us to rejoice in our life, but finally, he also commands us to remember our own death. Because keep reading verses 1 through 7 of the next chapter, and you might have been a little confused you might have been taken back. This is actually a very highly debated poem. There are many interpretations for what the preacher is trying to point us to, but just let's start at the foundation. This is a poem reflecting on God, the creator, Genesis chapter 1. 
It uses language, language of the very first chapter of the entire Old Testament. But then he begins to use all this imagery throughout it, calling us to remember our Creator in the days of our youth, and that calls us to these images. We're not going to go verse by verse with it, but we can just talk about the many interpretations that are taken of this one chapter. Going all the way back to the Aramaic Targums and following to a great Old Testament scholar, Franz Dillich, many people saw this as an allegory of our age. We are not just to rejoice in our life, in all the days of our life, but we are to remember our Creator because our body begins to fall apart. There are points to this where we see the grinders ceasing. Actually, the language there is teeth. And especially back in the Old Testament, they did not have dentists to take care of their teeth. So as you age, your teeth began to fall out. Interpreters saw the windows dimming as your eyes failing. You see your body begin to fail. The keepers of the house trembling, it is your knees failing. The singers ceasing, it is your ears failing. And we can just understand this from a real perspective for all of us. As we age, we are not the same 21-year-olds we used to be. We do not have the same energy we have. We are actually... As we age, our body does begin to fail us. And there is a reality that we can take from that interpretation, that as we age, we are to remember God as our creator, but it is not to just remember him, but looking back to verse 8, to rejoice in him. Rejoice in all the days that God has given us. That's just one interpretation, looking at it from an allegorical perspective. There's also some people that look at these verses and they see it more from an existential level. It's actually, you, you saw the images, and if it's just strictly looking at the story, it is a storm coming, but it's actually a picture of a funeral that is starting, a person dying. And it's a picture reminding us not just that we age, but that all of us will die one day. Because even how does it end? In verse 5, speaks about terrors of fear of heights, almonds blossoming. But at the very end, all of man is going to his eternal home. And that is not speaking of heaven. It is the grave itself. The mourners are in the street because the person is dead. He is in the grave in verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Not only is it that we age, and as we age, we are to remember God, but we are also to remember our own mortality and to let our end influence our lives today. That despite the fact that our life comes to an end. We are to let that influence the day we have today. 
But honestly, there's a third interpretation, and this is at least the way I read it, the most likely. He's not just speaking on the individual level, but because there's a storm coming, this is speaking on a cosmological, eschatological end of all humanity. Because the language here is actually picking up language that the prophets would use of the day of the Lord, where the sun, the moon, begins to darken. It is because the storm comes upon the city, what actually happens? The men of war, the people, the keepers of the house, these strong men that are supposed to be protecting the city, are the ones terrified. They are trembling at the sight of this coming storm. One rising at the sound of the birds, actually the language there is better interpreted, the sound of the birds rise throughout the city. As humanity ceases, as there are fewer people, life, animal life, begins to rise. There are more animals, grasshoppers. All these animals begin to flourish throughout the city. And we see just the sensation cessation of common activities. The grinders are ceasing. The doors and the streets are shut. There is no activity happening in the town because there is this ultimate aspect of all of the city, all of this village coming to an end. So with all three of these perspectives, how are we to read this passage for ourselves? First, this morning, we are to remember life, to rejoice in our life, but we are to remember our own personal end, to rejoice in the gifts that God has given us, but we are also to rejoice and remember that we, come to, we will come to an end one day. And let the end, as I've said, influence how we live this morning, not by idly trolling on Netflix all the days of our life, not by trolling around on YouTube, not just by spending our time in idleness, but actually in spending our time with God himself. But not only do we see an end to ourselves, but we also are to rejoice and remember the end of all humanity that this is a picture of the ultimate end of all of creation. It is this decreation of Genesis 1 happening here. All of humanity is coming to an end, and that is actually to influence how we live today. Because going back to chapter 11, God is the one that will bring all things into judgment. The preacher never leaves us hanging on that aspect. He keeps reminding us, no matter what happens in this world, no matter what injustice we see, that God will bring everything into judgment and make all things fitting and appropriate at the end of the age. And we might be questioning how God is working in the present, but we're actually to be looking forward, looking with eager expectation, knowing that God is not distant, God is not ignorant of what is happening in this world, but God will actually bring an end to all humanity one day and bring us all before him 
at the judgment seat. At this great day that the prophets continually speak about, this day of the Lord. But it's actually because of that day of the Lord that we come to our final application to rejoice in our life and to remember how we ought to live in light of that day. Because moving to the New Testament, in 2 Peter, if you want to move there, 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter is speaking about this end of all of humanity, the same, the same point that the preacher is speaking about. But then he turns that into ethics of how ought we to live this morning in light of the end of all humanity. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, the Apostle Peter tells us that our eschatology, our understanding of the end of time, ought to inform our ethics of how we live today. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Verse 11, this is what the Apostle tells us. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promises, we are waiting for the new heavens and new earths in which righteousness dwells. We are to let the end of all creation inform how we live in the presence. We are not to lay up treasures for ourselves in this world. We are to be laying up treasures in the next, as our Savior Jesus at the Sermon of the Mount tells us. We are to not set our minds on things below, but to set our minds on things above. Our ultimate priority is not by creating kingdoms in this world, but by living as pilgrims, as strangers, seeking holiness and godliness, as the apostle tells us, and looking forward to that day of the Lord where God will return. It is actually that day of the Lord we speak of. That when we look at that day, the New Testament actually appropriates that language. But then it begins to use it in light, not, in light of not just the God of Israel, but the Apostle Paul speaks of it as being the day of our Lord Christ Jesus. And when we are looking forward we are not just to be living lives in holiness and godliness separated from him. Because ultimately, we are eagerly expecting the return of Jesus Christ himself. He will be the one who makes all things right. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And when we are placing our trust in him as our Savior, as our Lord, then we can actually, with eager expectation, look forward to the day that he will come again and he will make all things right. We can have complete hope and satisfaction in him as our Savior this morning. Because you might be thinking, 
what a life well lived is one in which we are to focus on what we do today. And that is true, as we saw from Ecclesiastes. We are to rejoice in all the days of our life. But we are also to keep in mind the very end of our lives, the very end of all creation. And it is when we are looking at that day, we are not just generically looking at God himself. We are looking at our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the one that will return, that this day is ultimately pointing us to. And when we turn to him in faith, when we turn to him as our Savior and our Lord, we don't need to be questioning what that day will look like. We do not need to be as the keepers of the house, trembling at the day of the Lord but we are ultimately standing in the very righteousness of Christ, that the new heavens and the new earth will be ultimately summarized by. So with that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the great hope that we have of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that he is the one in which we can let our end inform our present life, that we can actually turn to him. And when we have faith, we are united to him. We have this deep and abiding relationship with him. We can come boldly before you, Father. We, I pray for all of us that we not only rejoice, we, we see all of our life as this gift that you have given us, that we do not drive ourselves to pessimism, to despair of our life, but that we can actually have deep abiding joy. And it is because we have hope in the Savior Jesus Christ who will return again and will make all things right in the new heavens and the new earth. And Father, I pray that all of us would look expectantly to the day that that comes. We pray this in your Son's holy name. Amen.